You're listening to Cloudies with a Chance of Scripture. On the Tower of Babel, we uh, took a look at the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which reminds us that uh, when God divided the nations, which is what we're looking at in Babel, God divides up the nations, uh, he did so by handing them over to the sons of God, which are spiritual beings, uh, but then God took Israel as his own inheritance, uh, which was Abraham, right? And that's uh, that's what we see in De- Deuteronomy 32, and that's what uh, we talked about last week, recognizing that in Deuteronomy 32's view, God separates the nations by languages, and then uh, he tells Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the nations, and when we get Jesus— uh, he sends the Holy Spirit to Christians. They are given back the languages and told to go into the world and save all the nations. So all that being said, we see this uh, very uh, huge story throughout the Bible beginning to run throughout the whole thing between uh, separating the nations and now bringing the nations back to God, the disinheritance of the nations and the reinheritance later. But What we did not talk about is why. You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are on the Tower of Babel, which is where we got to last week. And on the Tower of Babel, we uh, took a look at the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which reminds us that uh, when God divided the nations, which is what we're looking at in Babel, God divides up the nations, uh, he did so by handing them over to the sons of God, which are spiritual beings. Uh, but then God took Israel as his own inheritance, uh, which was Abraham, right? And that's uh, that's what we see in De- Deuteronomy 32, and that's what uh, we talked about last week, recognizing that in Deuteronomy 32's view, God separates the nations by languages, and then uh, he tells Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless the nations, and when we get Jesus— uh, he sends the Holy Spirit to Christians. They are given back the languages and told to go into the world and save all the nations. So all that being said, we see this uh, very uh, huge story throughout the Bible beginning to run throughout the whole thing between uh, separating the nations and now bringing the nations back to God, the disinheritance of the nations and the reinheritance later. But What we did not talk about is why Eden, image God to the entire world, subdue all of creation, not in a negative way, but in a kingly reign over kind of way, queenly reign over kind of way. Get out there, take care of all creation, bring it into alignment with God, take a little bit of Eden out of here, make the rest of the world look just like God's presence, right? Uh, We fail at that miserably. Uh, We're even kicked out of Eden for how badly we failed at that. But now the same thing has been said to Noah. Noah, be fruitful and multiply. You've got the new Eden all set up. Get out there. Go plant, uh, uh, you know, go into the rest of the world and make it look 
like uh, like uh, God's space, like Eden. But that is not what we see, right? And in fact, we see like a, a pure ignorance of that uh, very command in which the people of the Tower of Babel are intentionally doing the opposite. So let's read in Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And <laughs> sound like mortar, right? Like, like Lord of the Rings. Sorry. Okay. Uh, and then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So pause right there and recognize, first off, part of the reason God is upset is because they are not doing what he's commanded them to do. Again, just as he told Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, so God reiterates it to Noah in Genesis 9:1, where he tells Noah and his sons, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What happens at the story of the Tower of Babel is not them filling the earth, but them doing the, act, the, the intentional opposite. Let's build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That is literally their mission. <laughs> you know, they are supposed to be dispersed over the face of the earth to, to get out there and, and, and uh, uh, take over the whole thing. And yet here they are willfully, intentionally ignoring God. All right, picking back up in 11.5. Uh, uh, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. All right, that right there, the beginning of what they will do, now that we're already thinking in a different way, we're not just thinking, ah, they built a giant building. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. Uh, rather, we're already starting to think a little different, right? Ah, they have... Um, they have willfully disobeyed me in a very extreme way with this giant building of this building. Uh, this is only the beginning of what they'll do. All right, and that's not all that's going on here. There's a lot more that we're gonna we're gonna figure out as we get into some archaeological things, and as we also look at uh, um, our, a Nimrod back in our genealogy. We'll get there in a second, but let's let's finish the passage. Uh, this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, one of the things that I do want to point out here, God's talking in plural form again, right? We talked about this way back at the beginning of our podcast on Genesis, 
Who's the us he's talking to? Well, we already learned it's not the Trinity. That idea has not been established yet. It is uh, the heavenly council, the angels, the sons of God. You, you can call them whatever you want. They go by a lot of different names. Uh, and even though there's a lot of different uh, positions, cherubim, seraphim, uh, sons of God, angels, messenger angels, they still all tend to get kind of lumped up under the same exact kind of names. So God is talking to them in the same way he said, let's go down or let's go and create man in our image. He's telling the angels, let's make man in our image, just as I made you in my image. Now, uh, let's go make man in my image. But then God is the only one who creates, right? So he brings them into um, uh, into the knowledge of it. Uh, it's like kind of inviting them, but still God's the only one who does it. Hey, let's go make man in our image. But then only God creates. In the same way, it happens here, right? Let's go down and confuse their language. But then it says... Uh, Yahweh is the one who dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So are the angels kind of invited into the plan or to see the plan, the heavenly host? Do they get that chance? Yes. But are they the ones who actually do the work? In these cases, no, these things are reserved uh, for God. But still, he, he invites them to participate in the knowledge and the watching, if you will. All right, so what are some of the other reasons that the Tower of Babel is so bad that God would want to confuse everyone's language? Well, uh, it starts with rebellion, and that takes us to Nimrod. Okay, last week we went through uh, a genealogy. Genealogies tend to be kind of boring. We zone out. We don't pay attention. But if we were to pay attention we would notice that uh, within this genealogy, there's somebody who is uh, mentioned with greater detail. This always tends to happen. It's part of the reason that we want to keep our eyes open in genealogies. Like Enoch, right? If we were following the pattern with Enoch, everybody died in the genealogy, but Enoch, for some reason, just goes to be with God as though he didn't die. But uh, here in uh, Genesis 10, we see someone else capitalized upon, and his name is Nimrod. Now, when we look at Nimrod in Genesis 10:8, here's what it says. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Arech, Achted, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So, uh, actually it goes on. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. So, already we're, we're thinking of some other nations, too, that aren't seen in very positive lights in the Bible, such as... Uh, Nineveh. So Nineveh, Babel, these are uh, connections to um, cities that are not going to be looking so well in the Bible. And who fathered these places, who created them? Uh, Nimrod is what they get attributed back to. And who was Nimrod? Well, he's the one who gets more explanation to him as a, a person than other people in Genesis 10 who are just listed as names. Uh, this guy uh, did more than just, you know, get his name in a book. 
He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was a mighty man. Now, there's some stuff here that we're not picking up on because we don't read Hebrew. If we were paying close attention, we would notice that some of these words uh, do sound familiar. We've seen them already in Genesis. But if we were to study Hebrew, it would probably pop out at us a little bit more. And this starts with uh, the fact that Nimrod is a mighty man. Now, can you remember a time already in Genesis where we saw uh, people who were uh, defined or uh, explained to be mighty? We have. If we were to back up to Genesis 6, 4, we get to the Nephilim, who are the offspring of the sons of God, or angels, having sex with the daughters of men, so women, creating the Nephilim. And the Nephilim, uh, the Nephilim are said to be mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. That's what the Nephilim are defined as. Right here, we have Nimrod being a, a, a mighty. So this word, this is an intentional callback to what we've already seen. In some way, we're thinking of Nimrod as the offspring of the giants, even though we just wiped them out in the flood. We do see them appear later in Numbers. We see them with Goliath. You know, the giants reappear in the Anakim and the Rephaim. So they, they still reappear, but we always thought that was way down the line. But if we're paying close attention to the wordplay, we're already seeing references to the giants, or at least to what the giants stand for, right here in Nimrod, when he gets called a mighty man, taking our minds right back to the previous mighty people, the Nephilim. Now, I'm not saying that Nimrod had to be a Nephilim. He at least definitely represents a lot about the Nephilim, another rebellion, um, but uh, later Jews actually saw him very easily in this light, and given what we're learning, you could see how someone might make that assumption. Uh, let me read from the Lexham Bible Dictionary here. Here's Nimrod in Jewish tradition. The interpretation of the figure of Nimrod in Jewish tradition is overwhelmingly negative. According to Philo of Alexandria, Nimrod's ancestors epitomize evil and spiritual unproductiveness which can only result in giants. Later in the Jewish legends, Nimrod is described as the archetypal evil king who made all people rebel against God. He is also noted as the builder of the Tower of Babel and the enemy of Abraham. Furthermore, the lexical links shared among Genesis 6-4, 10-8-12, 11-1-9, through 9, namely the keywords giant, shinar, and Babel, suggest to the early Haggadists that Nimrod might have been one of the giants of Genesis 6. So right there, we, we already see that this assumption was somewhat plausible uh, to later readers of the Bible. So it wouldn't necessarily be a crazy conclusion to jump to, or at least we couldn't say that the Bible's not making some links here that would make us wonder. But this isn't the only callback to the Nephilim in the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, because we see another one too. Okay, so Nimrod, who kind of founds this place, is mighty in the same way that we saw the word mighty used of the Nephilim. But the Nephilim were also called the men of renown, or literally translated, the men 
of the name. So again, we lose in translation uh, some other things that are being communicated. So if the Nephilim are called the men of the name, well, what did we see happen in the Tower of Babel? They wanted to build a city with its top in the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. So already we're seeing, uh, you know, uh, more negative stuff here being communicated, stuff linking back to the Nephilim or just out of orderness or anti-God, anti what he's called his people to do. So now we're not just seeing a God who comes down. He's like, oh, they built a big building. I shall divide their languages and disinherit them all. No, we're seeing what he just tried to wipe out is making its way back into the world already. It wasn't, uh, it seems that it wasn't completely eradicated with the flood and that man already is, is falling prey to, to previous, previous negative stuff. Okay. So when God comes and, uh, uh, changes languages, it's not just because he's having a temper tantrum. It's not just because it's a bad day for him, and he just felt kind of petty about little things. There's a lot more going on here. And uh, we even see that just in the name Nimrod. Nimrod's the guy who made this place. Uh, there is debate over how to translate the name Nimrod, but one of the uh, name, one of the words that people often just go to is it seems to represent the word rebellion or rebellious. So here you have Nimrod, even by his very the very translation of his name, he represents rebellion, and the whole world is working on a city of rebellion. So again, you know, the more we learn about uh, the languages, the more we catch on to here, and the more we learn about uh, archaeology, the more we understand what this tower is. Because here's the thing: it's actually not like a big uh, staircase reaching into the heavens, like those fantasy type pictures you've seen online. Uh, we actually have a very good idea of what this is, and that's partially because it's described as a tower with its top in the heavens. That is not just like a, yeah, let's make a really big building. That's actually a key phrase to describe what kind of building they're talking about. And so let's, uh, let's jump into that right now. Okay, so what is the Tower of Babel? Now, if you've read my book, The Rush and the Rest, then when you got into my section on tongues, you already uh, heard a lot about this. Uh, but uh, here's here's how we start to, to recognize it. Okay, so it's defined in Genesis 11.4 as a tower with its top in the heavens. But this expression isn't actually supposed to be talking about, like, it's so high, it's up in the clouds. But more, it's about its purpose. So uh, be thinking like heaven's not just like a place, uh, you know, um, really, really high up, but be thinking heaven's like where the spiritual beings live, okay? So uh, to quote John H. Walton, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, in his uh, 
book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, in which he just goes through tons of ancient Near Eastern stuff to help us understand the Bible better. He says, throughout Mesopotamian literature, almost every occurrence of the expression describing a building with its head in the heavens refers to a temple with a ziggurat. Now, a ziggurat, if you don't know what that is, that well, I'd be thinking maybe like a um, ancient uh, like Mayan culture, you know, like the you've seen it in movies and stuff. Like a sacrifice takes place at the top of this uh, almost pyramid-looking temple, right? You walk these long stairs all the way to the top, and that uh, even even SpongeBob, the second SpongeBob movie, you see that movie? Look, I have kids, so I've seen that movie. Uh, also, I just watch a lot of SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that aside, at the top of this uh, staircase, uh, you know, they're about to sacrifice SpongeBob something something because of a Krabby Patty. That doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Just trying to help you remember what a ziggurat is. So uh, ziggurats were stairways or ramps to the heavens in which they hoped that their gods would descend from the heavens to the earth to like this welcoming place. Uh, not necessarily sacrifices up there, but like this like little house at the top where there might be a, a small room prepared for the deity to make a home in. And then that deity, these gods, if they were willing, which humanity hoped that they were, these deities would then be able to walk all the way down the stairs to come down out of, uh, come down into a temple at the bottom to be with humanity. So, that being said, here we have a very interesting uh, portrayal uh, showing us again that God's not just mad that there's a big building. Oh, this is the first thing humanity does. Everything else will be awful. No, it's rebellious. It's connected to uh, rebellion in the past that w was attempted to be wiped out already, and now it's already resurfacing. Uh, and uh, it's connected to uh, the false gods, to false worship. It's connected to uh, even, you know, the Nephilim in, in ways that we can now see. So all that being said, we start to see like, yeah, of course God's upset. They are to be people who follow after him. They're to be people who who image him to the world, who go into the entire world and populate it with God's presence and subdue it as imagers of God would do so that Yahweh takes over the entire earth through these humans in which he's given the authority to take over the earth and, and, and take care of it on his behalf. And what are they doing instead? Everything the opposite. The Tower of Babel is not just a giant building. The Tower of Babel is like, you know, the new rebellion made by a guy whose name is literally Rebellion. And everything that's been tried to be wiped out before, I know, I'm just repeating myself, but it's all resurfacing. It's all coming back in right here. Now, uh, John H. Walton actually sees this. Uh, he imagines that there is this city here going on as well, right? Because we see that they build both a city and a tower. So in Walton's mind, he thinks that the Tower of Babel is like a temple complex featuring a ziggurat, which was designed to make it convenient for the God to come down to his temple, bless his people, and receive their worship. Now, this doesn't sound anything like what we want 
uh, for for God, right? So this is going a very bad direction. So if you're wondering why were the nations turned over to the uh, other spiritual beings and God just chose Abraham and started from scratch all over again right after the flood, right after the Tower of Babel, well, now you know. Humanity has proved over and over again that they are incapable of following through with God's mission. They are incapable of steering clear of sin. They constantly find themselves back with rebellion over and over again. Uh, Our stubbornness to this point, I mean, wow, right? Ten chapters. We are ten chapters in right now, and humanity has managed to mess this up over and over and over again. We're stubborn and we aren't following God as uh, as he hopes. And so, yeah, yeah, uh, things are changed, languages are divided, but with the express purpose of bringing everybody back together when Jesus comes to repair the world. That's why, just as tongues were uh, dispersed through the world at the Tower of Babel, so tongues are given back to the Jesus followers, the true Yahweh followers, much later, to go back and bring everybody out of the grip of the Nephilim, out of the grip of the false gods, out of the grip of everything that rebellion stands for, and make them right with God, justified by the blood of Jesus. So, that might be a different teaching than you're used to on the Tower of Babel, but I think it gives you a much deeper insight. You know, there's always kind of great themes to pull out of it, I remember teaching a youth group when I was much, much younger, still in college, just telling them, like, ah, it's their pride that's so bad, guys. This is why God changed their language. And then I talked about pride in my life and how I was just focused on myself rather than on God, building all these towers to myself. Uh, But, uh, you know, we might say that there's pride in the story, but now that we see it in a much fuller, contextualized, ancient Near Eastern light, that's made usage of the intentional Hebrew words throughout it. We're like, wow, I did not see any of that coming. So I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, feel free to always send your questions. Just go to 12voigtgreenwood.com and uh, answer, sorry, write down any questions you have in that little Q&A box. That'll come to us. We'll try to address that on future podcast episodes. Likewise, if you like what you're hearing uh, or it's giving you deeper insight that you want to keep getting more of and share with others, Uh, If you're on iTunes, uh, it always helps us if you just leave a little uh, rating at the bottom. Uh, You just click a star real quick. That'll help it get out to more people as as iTunes recognizes that it's been useful to you. So with all that being said, we will return to uh, Genesis next week. But man, this is taking some time. We're 10 chapters in. We've We've been talking about this for months. So let's keep doing it. Let's see where God leads us. And you know, as we uh, as we close out here, uh, I wrote a song way back in the day about the Tower of Babel. It was well before I knew any of this stuff. But it's not very often that you can make use of a song about something so specific. So here it is in today's podcast as uh, as we wrap up. Well, we once all had one language. We shared a common speech. And as we all on these were we chose place to be. One brick by brick, we built it up Oh, man.
In the sky